You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Today, we have a conversation with Joan Luria, the CEO of Convergence. Convergence works to increase the flow of private sector investment into developing countries through blended finance deals. We'll get into the specifics of of what exactly that means, but simply put, it's the use of public and or philanthropic capital to catalyze private sector investment. Prior to taking the helm at Convergence, Joan was a managing director at the Overseas Private Investment Corporation the U.S. government's development finance institution. She was also a managing director at the Global Environment Fund, a private equity fund targeting clean energy investments in developing countries. And she worked at the International Finance Corporation. So as you can see, she has a breadth of experience both in the public sector and the private sector, as well as in international development. Our conversation today covers examples of blended finance in action, why this type of deal structure is necessary to achieve the UN's sustainable development goals, and which of the SDGs lend themselves particularly well to this type of deal structure. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. Joan, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So your company, Convergence, is dedicated to driving private sector investment into developing countries, specifically through the use of blended finance. What, what is blended finance? Well, um, let me give you the official definition and then break it down into normally. Our point of view would be, uh, it's the use of catalytic capital to increase private sector investment in sustainable development. And we focus very much on emerging economies. So the use of catalytic capital means um, money that might come from a public donor or a philanthropic institution. So imagine a USAID or a Rockefeller Foundation. And that money is purposefully not seeking market rate returns for its risk profile. It is doing something sub-market for the impact that it might achieve. And that money is being put into a financial transaction with the intent of not only getting that impact done, but pulling in purely commercial money. The idea is that the party seeking the impact gets more dollar bills working on its goals. And commercial parties who normally would not touch at that particular style or type or whatever, uh, that kind of transaction, now will go in because its risk and its reward profile of where it's entering the transaction now makes sense. So the idea is to get more dollars going into sustainable development by um, creating a new lane of traffic. You know, there's a lot of philanthropic and official donor activity that's always going to happen. There's a lot of purely uh, commercial money that's going to continue investing in purely commercial things. But there is a, a, a third lane of investment that can be achieved if some of those kinds of money are put together. Got it. And and what um, you said that that private sector capital wouldn't normally touch some of these deals. What what is the what are the obstacles to getting that institutional or, or private capital into these deals? Why the need for catalytic capital? 
Right. Well, there's no one thing out there called the private sector, and we are painfully aware of that. The the sort of more amenable private sector investors would be the impact investors, uh, these supremely flexible private equity funds. Um, but then on the on the extreme end of the spectrum, uh, that is, uh, people are really hard to get into our markets and our objectives, the sustainable development goals would be the institutional investors. So let's talk about them because that's the really tough money. The institutional investors of the world have trillions of, at, uh, of financial assets under their control. So getting them invested in tough markets and tough sectors and high impact things would be wonderful. But that, those dollars, they need to move in bulk. A lot of these types of investors need to write $100 million checks at a time, and they don't want to be more than 20% of a deal. Do the math. How many billion dollar deals have you seen in poor countries? So there's the size of the deal problem. Um, The risk profile, an institutional investor, again, let's talk plain English. It could be your pension fund manager. So you've been paying into your pension fund your whole life. And the only thing you're asking of that pension fund manager is when you retire, you darn well want to get your check every two weeks, right? Right. You don't want to hear that they've suddenly had this bleeding heart moment and gone and put your money into something. <laughs> so that that fiduciary duty of that investor is so high that they are very risk averse. Mm-hmm. And they need comfort, the kind of comfort that comes with a rated instrument, the kind of comfort that comes with having short tenors, by short, I mean like four years or less, the kind of comfort that comes with um, having very senior positions where somebody else will take the hit first. Mm -hmm. So there are many, many reasons why hard commercial money doesn't go into the things where, into the places where convergence is trying to get money to go. Uh, And it's not because it's irrational. It's totally irrational. It is totally a a correct thing from their point of view. The question is, how do you change those transactions? How do you shape those opportunities so that this money can go responsibly? Do you have an example of uh, a specific deal that could help to to illustrate the idea? Maybe one that that you're particularly excited about the potential of? Yes. So we see transactions happening uh, and we are excited about a lot of them, not because we done a due diligence and think that's the place everybody should invest. But we like the kinds of structures we're seeing now that do move capital at scale. I'm going to give you one example um, that I can talk about because it was a grantee of convergences out of our design funding program, wherein we pick um, opportunities that are proof of concept stage, and we help the team working on them get that idea to market. So one idea came to us that we really liked, um, among others, and it was uh, proposed to us by Developing World Market. Now, this is an impact uh, manager, all right? And they came to us and said, um, the world of uh, wash, water and sanitation and hygiene, Mm -hmm. it's largely grant funded. And there are a couple billion of our fellow human beings who don't have access to clean water or basic sanitation. So we, developing world markets, want to attract institutional investors into this challenge. That, I'm telling you, is a long bridge to build between institutional money and hygiene projects in a developing country. Think about household, you know, toilets or um, water filters, right? Just because of the scale issue that you talked about earlier? Scale, the risk, the unknown type of asset. I mean, 
uh, an institutional investor is another thing. They would say, well, show me the last 20 deals of this type, and there aren't any. Right. So uh, these folks came to us and said, we think we can put together a $100 million transaction. Now our ears perk up because you're talking real money. Um, and the idea of this transaction, I picked this one also because it's quite simple. What they said is, we will go out and find 10 to 15 places to put the money. That is, um, financial institutions or operating companies who are serving clients who really are trying to do exactly that, you know, um, put basic uh, boreholes, toilets, household fit- filtration, whatever. So we've got, we're going to line up these customers in advance. And we know what kind of loans they need. Then we're going to go out to, and, and securitize this, put all these loans in one package. Now, now the risk profile comes down because you have a package of things, not one specific um, risky endeavor. We're going to package this, and then we're going to um, introduce tiers of investors. And the very bottom tier, those at the very junior part of the capital um, equation, are going to be taking large risks, and they're probably going to be concessional. But then we're going to have a mezzanine tier and a senior tier and a super senior tier. And those are the tiers of money we think we can float to. You know, they're going to issue a note, issue notes to um, institutional investors. So what they've done is, number one, made something big enough. Number two, um, introduced tiers of investment so that there is a super senior tier that can reasonably have institutional money in it. And the blending is that down at the bottom end of the structure is money that is probably not going to be fully compensated for its junior position and the risks it's taking. So you get you now have introduced a way to move a large amount of money into a vessel that in turn will invest in ten or or lend to ten or fifteen uh, borrowers and move some serious money into clean drinking water and sanitation. And the very neat thing about this is. You can wash, rinse, lather, repeat, right? However mm-hmm. that goes, wash, lather. <laughs> Once you get uh, a structure like this done, it doesn't have to be wash, you know, water and sanitation and, and, and hygiene. It doesn't have to be that objective next time. It could be another uh, impact objective. But the, the pattern gets established and hopefully it introduces a type of investor into something that they've never imagine touching. And um, this particular opportunity is going to go into um, some, you know, it's it's not going into into easy places. They're looking at places like India and Bangladesh and Cambodia. Um, this is, you know, this is not Germany. So right. <laughs> this is a, a big ask. So we liked the boldness of this. We liked the simplicity of it. Um, they're floating something called a, 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 a note in that everybody knows what that looks like, and it will hopefully move some capital into something that, like I said, it has always just gotten grant money. And the fact is there just is not enough grant money out there. Grant money is wonderful, but we see um, annually there's probably only $145 billion of official donor flows into these markets, and the scale of the problem is in the trillions. So in this specific deal, it sounds like you have catalytic capital up front in terms of the design stage grant and and in terms of the junior uh, note holders investing in the deal. So would you consider that two separate catalytic capital sources or, or is it only the 
the two uh, who are investing alongside each other in the the note? I love that question. Um, <laughs> there are two different things going on there, aren't there? In fact, there may be more than two. Um, to, quick plug for our website. If you go onto the public side of our website, you will see that we've diagrammed out some really prototypical examples of how blended finance deals get done over and over and over again. Uh, that's one of our services to the community is to say, hey, this stuff isn't all that complicated. There are like four or five patterns. So you, you just caught two patterns. One pattern is where somebody does something very early that's grant or grant-like, and they're the only people on stage. Okay. And they nurture something along to the point where commercial money will go, yeah, I'll take a look at that. That's design funding by convergence. There are other parties out there who do other, other ways, but it's the same idea. There are, is also um, another archetype is that you have the soft money, the catalytic capital in at the same time as the commercial money in the same structure and junior to it. That's a second really classic type of blended finance. Okay. This transaction or in other transactions, you may also have someone step up and offer a guarantee. And that guarantee, if it is not fully priced, if they're not asking for a guarantee fee that really reflects what that guarantee is doing, that is another way of introducing catalytic capital into a structure. Um, so that's another classic pattern. Got it. it. It sounds like there are kind of two tiers on the the outcome side as well. You have this $100 million note, I think you said it was, and then you also are proving out this business model or this area as an investable area for private capital. Is that right? Yeah. We actually put out a, a commentary piece recently on this very subject, which is the impact in blended finance. One impact is that you, of the structure, mm -hmm. that you often get the commercial money in. Another impact is what's actually happening with the money. So people are getting household sanitation and uh, clean water. Um, another impact is you put out into the market a pattern that other people can replicate. And a fourth impact would be just introducing, introducing investors to something that they are not familiar with. So um, if you imagine originally probably you know, project finance for ports and airports was mm. and now everybody kind of goes, yeah, everybody knows how to do that. So imagine if impact notes for water and sanitation or impact notes for early childhood education or impact notes for um, community health became something everybody got familiar with. Now that's my dream, <laughs> but um, that is another kind of impact where you are laying down a pattern um, and allowing people to get familiar with something, both the structure and the objective. And you just mentioned a few impact or development goals. Are there certain areas that lend themselves particularly well to this way of structuring a deal and, and vice versa, any that maybe it's not as effective for? Well, I'm not sure this is the exact answer to your exact question, but we do see patterns in where uh, blended finance seems to fall quite naturally. First of all, you have to have a revenue line, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so somebody has to be able to pay the commercial guys back. All right. So if you think about that, there are some sustainable development goals that lend themselves more naturally or, or seem to um, tee up blended finance more naturally. 
Um, so anything having to do with um, reduction in poverty, increased access to finance, um, those objectives are, I think, um, right down the fairway. When you get into education, it gets a lot tougher. When you get into, um, you know, peace, justice, and strong institutions, whatever that is, SDG 16, it gets pretty tough. We do know of structures that have, you know, um, addressed those SDGs. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, we see a clustering, in particular, we see a clustering of, of um, blended finance deals around financial institutions and um, energy, which is typically renewables. The financial, uh, the, the structures that go to, toward financial institutions, what's actually happening there, happening there is probably somebody putting together a financing package for a microfinance institution or for a, a lending institution that in turn is supporting agriculture or what have you. So it's just sometimes hard to see through the data. You mentioned that poverty is a more obvious area. Um, I, I imagine because if you're helping people rise out of poverty, they're making more money and there's an opportunity to to make back that that note. Is that is that right or am I? Uh, it, it's a good question. What's going on there is that um, many times blended finance goes towards something that is a, like I said, it's a revenue generating activity. You're, you're eventually supporting companies who are hiring people. Um, and so SDG eight, decent work, SDG nine in industry and innovation, SDG 10, reduced inequalities. You see, uh, and, and SDG one, no poverty. You see a lot of transactions that answer those objectives. Maybe they're not intending to, Maybe it's a project that is providing a logistic supply chain in it for an agricultural sector in some country. But when you actually look at what it's doing, it is increasing access to markets, it's reducing poverty, it's increasing the number of jobs available as a side effect of, of the structure. So there are certain SDGs that accidentally or on purpose become served by blended finance structure. Got it. Okay. Um, and, and what specifically, you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning with the, the grant um, funding, but what does Convergence do to facilitate these types of, of deals? So um, we were established specifically to uh, support the blended finance field. Um, and we do at this point, I would say three and a half things. Um, so, and I'll get why I'm joking about the half in a moment because it's kind of part of the third area. So the first thing we do is it's pretty simple. We put data out uh, because when we were founded, there wasn't a whole lot of reliable data on who's doing these transactions, which SDGs do they connect to, what sectors are they in, how big are they? How much money is happening? What are the structures? Mm-hmm. Um, we have painstakingly collected information deal by deal by deal. These are not things we've touched. These are these are transactions somebody has out done there. Somebody out there has done, excuse me. And we have gathered at this point about 500 examples of blended finance structures and we've mapped them out. So that's the first thing we do. At this point, we know of $140 billion wow. worth of blended finance transactions. Yeah. And I think that's a way undercount because it's just the stuff we can see, mind you. Right. Um, 
so we know about 140 transactions, probably most of them happened in the last five years. Um, and that's about um, 1,100 individual actors in these deals and about over 3,000 um, financial commitments. So in one transaction, you might have four parties making five commitments, just for, as an example. So that's the first thing we do. Mm-hmm. The second thing we do is under the rubric of, of knowledge and uh, learning. We take that data and we take what our members are talking to us about and we put out information in the field that is, I would say, more actionable. So, for example, we will put out a case study on a structure that we think is very useful for other people to know about because it did something unusual or it accomplished something tough to do or it applied blended finance in a shape that nobody had thought about before. So we've got a bunch of case studies that are all publicly available. The, uh, and we also will go into uh, institutions and give them and, and run knowledge uh, exchange sessions. So we might go into a donor agency where they are thinking about maybe taking a small slice of their granting activities and um, you know, trying to work with the private sector. Mm-hmm. Sometimes time ever. And what they need to know is what their peers have done, what might work in their areas of interest and so forth. So this is much more interactive uh, work, this uh, knowledge area of our work. Um, The third thing we do is essentially make sure that whatever transactions um, we can bring to light, we do so. So we have um, a, a platform on which our members can post transactions that are seeking capital that happen to need blended finance solutions. Um, And each of our grantees, for example, as they go out to market, uh, could put their transaction onto our site. And we match those with the members uh, who have uh, capital at their disposal that might match the opportunity. And then we hope that they go off and talk to each other So that's in the nature of helping the capital find the opportunity, helping the opportunity find the right capital. And we try to present all these things in a very standard way so that, um, you know, people can flip through quickly. Uh, I said we do three and a half things because the the final thing we do is a kind of deal making in a sense, too. It is the design funding program that DWM came through. Um, this is our granting area, and what we are trying to do, what it's solving for, is the lack of investable blended finance transactions out there. So we take, uh, we open up a window every quarter or every half year. It depends on whose money we are um, putting out, and we invite ideas. So we have two open windows right now. One is for Asia Pacific, looking at natural capital, and another one. And that's uh, funded by RS Group, which is a family office from Hong Kong. What do you mean by by natural capital? Yeah, let me come back to that in a second. The other one, the other one is uh, funded by Australian DFAT, and our first uh, round of funding, we are looking for sustainable infrastructure um, ideas. So natural capital. Um, I don't know. You tell me. No, it's a. Um, <laughs> it is seriously a, a quite a new term, and it is the realm of. Um, you know, there's some really impressive, uh, actually not-for-profits out there, some, some um, in, in the conservation space, who have done an awful lot of work to really try to popularize the term and get us all thinking about it. And I'm thinking of our friends at World Wildlife Fund, you know, WWF, uh, the Nature Conservancy, Conservation International, 
there's some really smart people in these institutions trying to put together financial transactions for Mother Earth, in a sense. Okay, so natural capital is essentially trying to put a value on what is around us, the trees, the ocean, um, you know, and, and figuring out how to construct financial proposals that will protect um, those assets. I think probably the very first and, and, and sim- most simplistic things that ever happened a couple decades ago is probably ecotourism. And what you're trying to do there is create an income stream so people don't, you know, destroy their habitat out of poverty. Um, and we've moved much, much beyond that into sustainable forestry and, um, you know, coastal fisheries. Uh, there, But it's a very tough area to invest in. And it matters a lot for all of us, and it matters for climate change. And so uh, the idea that the RS Group had was to try to prove out that there are investable propositions in this realm. They've asked us to run our design funding program to solicit ideas in this space. Got it. So this kind of ties into the proving out the, the business model area of catalytic capital. Yeah. This is not an area where I can cite, you know, a lot of transactions. We put out a conservation finance brief, actually, um, a couple months back. And what transactions there are, that we, there, we have seen some rather large transactions, but conservation finance and, and natural capital are not quite the same thing, right? So you mentioned that when you were founded, there wasn't a lot of data available and, and that most of the, the deals, the 140 billion, uh, I think you mentioned in, in deals is within the last five years. So it seems like this is a relatively nascent industry. Um, what, what led you to, to found convergence? What were you doing beforehand? Let me break that question. If you, if you will indulge me. <laughs> Please. First of all, it's not a nascent industry. What happened was nobody was noticing that this stuff was happening. There are people out there who have been doing blended finance literally for decades. And just to cite one example, the Aga Khan Foundation, they've been doing pairing their commercial uh, um, initiatives with their philanthropic initiatives for a very long time. And, you know, they've they've got lots and lots of examples of things they've done. And that's just one example. Um, What was happening was it wasn't really um, systematized, noticed, recorded, and so nobody was learning from each other in a, in, a, in a powerful way. And hopefully we're changing that. Hopefully now when you go to do one of these things, you can go onto our site, you can talk to us, you can go look at your peers and, and you can just copy, mm-hmm. all right, where you can speed up what you're doing. Um, so in terms of founding convergence, I actually uh, did not have this brainstorm. This was thought up by people far brighter than I am. Um, <laughs> I find it hard to believe. Oh gosh, yes. So a bunch of people. So that the story, the backstory on this, is that as the sustainable development goals were being, you know, thought out and priced out, um, and it became clear that this was a problem that, at least in our markets, uh, had a financial hole of about two point five trillion per year. Uh, and it became clear that the private sector needed to be a part of the solution because it, only it operates in the trillions, and it does every day. I mean, these these goals are a drop in the bucket if you had private sector money attached to them. Um, so as all that thinking was coming around, 
um, some parties started talking to each other who were an unusual mix of people. So you had um, the Canadian government, the World Economic Forum, Citibank, and I'm trying to think of others, the Swedish government, USAID, Rockefeller Foundation, and forgive me, I'm probably forgetting some others who are in on the discussions, but think about the that mix of people and resources. Yeah, some unlikely allies. What an unusual coalition. And um, they all said, you know, we ought to do something about this. There ought to be a sort of a center for excellence and for learning um, to develop this field. And the Canadian government stepped forward and wrote a couple of checks. The first checks they wrote were to write out a business plan and to um, incubate the idea. And they pulled in Dahlberg and Global Development Incubators, Global Development Incubator, excuse me, GDI. And um, then when they went to launch, they headhunted for a CEO. And that's when I showed up. Um, so <laughs> I... I enter, I enter from the you know, stage left at about chapter four or <laughs> act four. Um, and uh, the Canadian government, I, I have to commend them for doing something really unorthodox and, you know, putting the, the maple leaf on it because uh, nobody else was going to step forward. And now we are an international resource that lots of people benefit from. We are in no way, um, you know, just supporting the Canadian uh, government's ideas and, and hopes, but also um, anyone who is either trying to invest and can't find a risk appropriate way to do it, or who is trying to have more impact by drawing in that kind of money. Mm -hmm. So what, what about your experience led them to, to put this in your capable hands? How did you end up helming the, uh, this new initiative? Um, you know the old expression, "You are what you eat." I, I, I think I eat. I think I eat what I am. So I'm actually a, a blended finance product myself. Um, so perhaps I had the kind of unorthodox background that lends itself to this. So um, my own background is: uh, I started off life as a liberal arts major. My my first degree was in uh, what was called at the time Oriental Studies and uh, Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> Not, not an obvious first step in the path to to helming convergence in my mind. Yeah, but you know, uh, so I was an Asia studies person and then went off to business school, went off to um, International Finance Corporation, which is a development bank. And then I worked in private equity and then I worked at OPIC, which is a U.S. government's development bank. Um, and so my background is part governmental institutions or international institutions, part totally hardcore private equity finance um, and a bit of a, a liberal arts degree as well. So I think that gives you a bit of a holistic approach to things. Part of the difficulty of blended finance is that you are always, I mean, 100% of the deals attached to SDG 17 partnership. Mm -hmm. You are always in partnership with someone you don't naturally tend to work with. I mean, think about a, let's pick a, uh, a foundation, a philanthropic institution working with, um, you, you know, a hedge fund, it, it is just not a natural pairing. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't speak the same language. They don't have the same turnaround time. Uh, they don't have the same idea of what is risky and what is core to their operations. 
They don't use, I mean, even the word leverage, the word leverage we use a lot in blended finance. It means two wildly different things to two wildly different constituencies. Um, to some, it means how much of my grant money does it take to get a dollar of commercial money to the mm -hmm. table? That's levering. And to the city banks of the world, leverage is, you know, debt to equity ratios. I mean, people do not speak the same language. So um, this job requires switching languages, understanding people who are quite different from each other and where the hangups are, um, empathy, <laughs> and really just kind of being able to, to see things from multiple angles at once. So that's why I'm joking. I'm, I'm sort of, I, you know, you are what you eat. Uh, I am a blended finance product myself. <laughs> so you merged the uh, private equity experience with that international development that a lot of these deals, it sounds like the, it's how they're made up. Yeah, and I'm I'm totally missing several other things that are crucial. I mean, none of us can ever hope to work in every field on on, the, on earth, but I think it's a scattering of, of experience that turns out to be pretty useful. You know, you can walk into a development agency and credibly say the private sector does not think that a two million dollar transaction in your very obscure country is an appetizing prospect, and I can credibly walk into an institutional uh, investment house. A pension fund and say, you know, that the donors of the world sometimes don't see it as their calling to make life investable for you. You have to tell them why they're going to get their impact out of helping you. You have to speak impact. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you speak impact with these deals? How do you measure, measure the success? Is it capital deployed or deals funded or their impact metrics that as well. Obviously, it's tied to the SDGs, but how do you keep track of that? You know, it's it, it's such a um, a big question and an important one. Each of us wears a different hat. So those who are the principals in a deal that we might help along, they need to determine what they want out of the transaction. So if a donor agency like a DFID, a UK DFID, um, or USAID is in a transaction, they need to demand, uh, th there's a price on their money and it's impact. So they need to demand units of impact, whatever they see fit um, to ask for, for their money. And they need to be comfortable that what they're doing by working with this private sector investor in this financial construct will yield them at least as much impact as if they had spent that tax dollar somewhere else. That's Wearing that hat, they have to ask that question. The private sector investor in the equation may or may not be an impact investor, um, but we'll have to figure out how to deliver on that for that money. Um, we, as the, the grease in the system, um, we can ask questions about what impact any particular structure that asks us for help is trying to deliver and what SDGs they believe they are um, addressing and how they plan to measure impact, but we cannot dictate because we are not the ones moving the money into the deal. What we can do is just, you know, ask, ask the questions that illuminate the, the, um, the issues. Mm -hmm. But those who are doing the transactions, particularly those with the concessional, the catalytic money, have to demand they came to the table to get. How, how does somebody like a USAID, how do they decide what these priorities are? And are they, or is it altruism? Is it, or is it to some other end? 
So if it is an official donor agency, they are working with tax money. Mm-hmm. And they need to respond to the policy directives of their particular government. So USAID these days is talking about enterprise-led development. Um, and they are trying to you know, create markets on the ground. So whatever they are doing has to ma- match up with that objective or the, that set of objectives. Um, they also have a gender. So each donor agency will come to the table with their programmatic you know, priorities, and they're all a bit different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, a philanthropic institution um, probably goes through less, uh, less churn because they don't have election cycles and different administrations and, and different um, budgets uh, year to year, but they too have uh, their priorities. Got it. So someone like the government is trying to uh, create a market that will buy American goods and services or whoever that, that development agency's government is? I actually have not seen a lot of development agencies try to do, accomplish two objectives at once. The one objective being to develop countries who need you know, financial support to, to grow and to become more prosperous, and on the other hand, uh, to help the home market. Mm-hmm. Typically, a development agency is there to help other countries develop. And now, the na- obviously, the national security interest of the donor country is to create peaceable nations, right, and a more prosperous world, and to deliver on their commitments to their fellow donors about percentage GDP spent on these subjects. So there is a national objective, but I don't see a lot of, um, of mixing of those things. When you get to development banks, bilateral banks like an OPIC um, or any other single government-owned development bank, uh, they may very well have an interest in pairing up their their lending and their investing with their own host government's desire for, for helping their own companies. Um, but typically, these, these objectives are not mixed. Got it. Okay. What's next for the blended finance industry? Where is the, the industry headed? Well, it is still puny. Um, we, uh, in our uh, State of Blended Finance report 2019, point out that we are in a billions to billions track right now, and we have not gotten ourselves on a trajectory of billions toward trillions. Uh, so we need to really hustle because we are coming up on the last decade of this whole endeavor, this whole universal endeavor to um, hit the sustainable development goals. So what do you do to move the trillions? We want to focus very heavily in the upcoming period, whatever that is, on um, institutional capital. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of blended finance that attracts money at a certain scale, and we need really to upscale the whole thing as quickly as we can. We need more, not $100 million transactions, but $500 million transactions. Um, that is not to say you leave behind the smaller transactions in places that are just not big enough to take big money but it means we really have to get this accomplished. Um, So we really want to incite uh, some conversations and interactions between the institutional money and the donors of the world. Um, And we're not alone there. There are others saying the same thing. So that. Um, I also would like to see us uh, continue on the knowledge side with the next generation of knowledge. We've mapped the field. You pretty much know now who's doing what and where. The question is. A little bit more granular now. Okay, so inside these transactions, what have they actually looked like? I mean, I can tell you sometimes with, with some transactions that it was twenty percent concessional money and eighty percent 
hard commercial money. But what were the terms? And, you know, what was the, what kind of impact did the impact seeking party ask for? Um, I would love to be able to spot patterns in that and really bring information to the table that when people are negotiating, they know, okay, if I walk into a discussion with this donor, these are the kinds of things I better be prepared to talk about. Or if I'm, you know, so I'm really interested in getting to the next generation of content. Uh, the other thing we need to do is, if you look carefully, this whole discussion continues to be too far tilted toward the, um, I, I guess you call it the global north. That is, we're based in Toronto. The donors are based in wealthy nations. We have an office in Nairobi that's been a, you know, a, a wonderful addition to us because it's beginning to teach us what the voice of, you know, parts of Africa is on this whole subject. We need to get better at that. So um, I would like to see us have some kind of um, antenna or tentacles out into the markets where we're actually trying to get things done. You cannot continue to be, you know, a primarily Toronto, Ontario, Canada-based organization. You need to have allies. We need to know what smart things are happening in these field, in these mm -hmm. countries that we don't know about. Um, we need to tap into the investor base in these countries. These are poor countries, but there is a lot, a lot of domestic capital that could be part of the solution. It's not all foreign. Um, so that's the other thing. So I think you asked me a question about five minutes ago and I went on and on, <laughs> but the localization, uh, the next generation of information that empowers people to get transactions done and getting to scale. That's where we need to go. Do you view blended finance as the main mechanism to bridge this resource gap to achieving the SDGs? Or are there other uh, levers that are working in tandem? There are all sorts of other levers. In a sense, blended finance is a step when other things aren't working correctly. So markets are not perfect. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you need to solve for market imperfections. You know, people's perception is risk of, is too high. Markets can be at an inefficient size. There might not be a domestic capital market. Um, and blended finance is an attempt to put in a deal by deal by deal method um, to put money where it needs to go and to overcome market failures. So the other things that have to happen are regulations that work you know, sound credit ratings for, for countries. Um, I mean, there are so many other things that have to happen. Welcoming policy environments for capital to flow. Um, we need to think about the restrictions that have been placed on institutional investors that sometimes totally forbid them from going into some of the countries that need their help. So there are so many other things that have to happen. This is one piece of a quilt. Got it. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you would like to, to talk about? I guess I would just close by commenting on our own name, Convergence. The name was selected with a lot of foresight, and it predicted what we're now seeing, which is a convergence of interests between very, very different parties those who are simply trying to put money into places to earn the return uh, that they need to seek, uh, who are now starting to say, wait a minute, you know, my returns are threatened by climate change. 
I need to have a social license to operate. So that side of the house now has a lot in common with a development agency or a philanthropic institution. We somehow are having a, an aha moment right now. And perhaps it's, it's the climate crisis. Um, perhaps it's that you can see the effects of poverty when you go onto your TV at night. Um, but we are having a convergence right now of interest between incredibly disparate parties. And it gives me hope that, you know, we can all suspend skepticism and attempt to try to do things a bit differently here and there to get money flowing to where it needs to go. So um, I think that's where I'd close is that there is a way for very, very wildly different pools of money to do something productive that hasn't been done enough yet. I think that's a, a great note to end on. Thank, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to speak with me today. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, we were thrilled to be a part of this. So we're looking forward to your podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I really enjoyed speaking with Joan, and I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as well. As always, if you're interested in learning more about any of the topics discussed, head to our website at socialcapitalmarkets.net, where we'll post some resources around blended finance, international development, convergence, etc. And if you want to reach out to me directly, if you have any feedback or, or questions, uh, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us five stars on Apple and, and share it with a few friends. We would much appreciate it. Lastly, we'll be back in two weeks with a conversation with Matthew Davey from Kiva about Kiva Protocol and their systems change financial inclusion work. After that, we'll have an interview with Tom Ferguson from Imagine H2O about their accelerator investing in water startups. So stay tuned and we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.